Good to see you all. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew's Gospel. We're looking at the 21st chapter. The 21st chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 23, Lord willing, down through verse uh, 46. And uh, so we'll, let's, let's just go ahead and get into it. I, I just want to read the first uh, from verse 23 down to verse 32 uh, this morning, and then we'll get right into the passage. Um, but first, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, it's such a good thing for us to gather like this. And Lord, just to be settled and allow your word to have its way in us today. And so, Lord, we invite you, Lord, to open our understanding and, and open our hearts, Lord, too, that we would be willing as we read today, as, as we read your word, Lord, and we see the dynamic here between Jesus and the religious leaders, Lord, that we would examine our own hearts and, and Lord, that you would just continue working and installing within us, Lord, just this, this heart of Christ, the very mind of Christ, Lord, and and thank you, Lord, that uh, for all of those here, and hopefully all of us, Lord, for those who are born again, Lord, we have this wonderful privilege, Lord, of having your heart and your mind, and, and we pray again, Lord, that you would just uh, do that work in us today, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at verse 23 of chapter 21. Remember, Jesus has already come into Jerusalem for the first time. Uh, representing uh, himself as the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the nation as a whole had rejected him. And we know that it was immediately following that, that Jesus would cleanse the temple the final time before he would be crucified and ultimately resurrected and ascending to the Father. And in doing so, he really stirred up the ire of the religious leaders. They were hoping that he would come and, and deliver them. And he did much more than just deliver them. He delivered them from a, a life of death, of eternal death. That was his hope, his desire. The plan of redemption was to deliver them from their sin and to deliver them from the, the place that you and I would call hell to deliver them from that. But they were content on just being delivered from Rome. And you can see how short-sighted that is, isn't it? You know, he, Jesus didn't come just to, he didn't come to throw off the yoke of Rome. He very could have easily have done that. The creator of all things could have just spoke and says, the Roman army ceases to exist. And they would disappear. <laughs> he has that ability. That's how he created everything. He spoke and it happened. And he can do, he can uncreate if he so chooses. But he didn't. But he came for a much broader, a much bigger purpose than just deliverance from a despotic government, Rome. He came to save souls. But now the religious leaders, the nation as a whole, for the most part, had rejected him wholesale. And now Jesus is turning his back on them. For a season. For a season. And they continue in verse 23 just questioning him with contempt. 
And we're going to look at that. Let's look at just the first, verses 23 through 32. It says, now when he came into the temple, and this is the day following the uh, cleansing of the temple, and we're going to look at this. This is a, a, a timetable, if you will, of the Passion Week, and I believe this is as accurate as I can bring it right now. Uh, don't let this fluster you. There's a lot here, I know, but where we are at in this passage is on a Wednesday, so I'm just going to leave it there for now. So he, they, they questioned Jesus when he came into the temple, and this would be on this Wednesday uh, that you see on the screen, Wednesday of the Holy Week, which was April 1st, the, t- the 12th of Nisan. It says, Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and says, We do not know. And he said to them, well, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. But what do you think, Jesus says? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. And then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe in him. And so a very interesting passage, and the title of this morning's message is, the wicked vine dressers. The vine dressers were the religious leaders. They were to be the ones that were supposed to lead the people of Israel into a relationship with God, to represent God, and, and to lead them into that relationship. But instead, they were getting fat off the people. They were ripping them off. And instead of being the example, they were being just the opposite. And instead of a uh, believing the scriptures because you got to understand something folks these pharisees were bible scholars they knew the old testament very well they knew the prophecies and if they would just have opened their heart they would have seen that jesus fulfilled every single one of those prophecies to the letter to the letter but he was bad for business they were jealous of him insanely jealous of him he had power they had none and all they could do was find fault. And all they, could, all they desired to do was trip him up. Because if they believed in him, they would have to change their ways. And their ways were making them very wealthy. And their ways were all about gratifying and ingratiating themselves. Financially, spiritually, or, you know, emotionally, <laughs> socially. But they did not. They turned their back. The vine dressers, these religious leaders, should have been the ones to say, hey, this is the one. John was right. 
Of all the things that have been said in the Old Testament, it's him. And yet they wouldn't do it. And Jesus is going to get on their case. (laughs) And we just read it. So let's go back and look at it again. So now when he came to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching. And so remember what had happened prior to this, because it kind of sets the stage. you got to remember his triumphal entry on Monday, two days prior to this. He came into Jerusalem on the donkey, stirring up everyone and, and him fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament by doing so. Zechariah 9, verse 9, and others, Daniel 9, verse 24 through 27, fulfilling those prophecies concerning the Mashiach Nagid, the the king who would come into Jerusalem. And then the day following, to cleanse the temple of all the idolatry and all the things that they were doing, making, making merchandise of the people of God. And Jesus cleaning house, in a sense, driving out the money changers, overturning their tables. This was that morning when he came back into the temple. And so, now they come questioning him again. But in their heart, remember, they had already determined to kill him. If you remember back in Matthew 12, verse 14, they had already determined to destroy him. And so now they come to him. And, and Well, before I get there, in Matthew chapter 15... Verse 8, Jesus quoted Isaiah 29 when he said this concerning these religious leaders. He says in Matthew 15, verse 7, he says, Hypocrites. He says, Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain emptiness they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And this is where the religious leaders were at. That's where they were at. And so when they come in verse 23 and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? When they say these things, what they're referring to, no doubt, is what is all of this of you coming in on a donkey? And you telling us, if we had only recognized this our day, what do you mean? And and, and they knew what he meant. Now they they were like aware that they had really missed something. Because Jesus told them they missed it. But what things? Certainly the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, and perhaps the undeniable miracles, the myriad of miracles that Jesus had performed that has never been seen. He had power. And he was giving sight to the blind and giving stability to the legs of the lame. But Jesus answered in verse 24, and he said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. I love how it uh, is given in Mark's gospel. It's a little more forceful, and bear with me here, because in Mark's gospel, which is the parallel account of this, Jesus said it a little more forcefully. He says, but Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question, and then answer me. Can you hear the authority in his voice? I'm going to ask you a question, you answer. (laughs) And I love this. Who is in charge? Jesus, right? The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they thought they were in charge. And what hubris? What hubris to think that they were in charge? 
and, and they went on the offensive. And Jesus, when asked the question, he turns around and asks them a question. You know, that's a great way to, that's what politicians do actually, but it's a really great tactic. When somebody asks you a question, you turn it around and ask another question. But Jesus could handle the question because he knew the answer and he knew exactly what, the, what was going on here. And I want to just share something with you. I believe it's okay to ask God questions. It's okay to ask God questions if your heart is right, to ask him a question. But when you ask in contempt, in, with contempt in your heart, you are walking on thin ice. Because basically you're not looking for information. You're not seeking to understand. You're trying to trap and you're trying to justify your own position for not believing in him or his word. And these men had already broken through the ice. They were on thin ice and they had already broken through. They were drowning and they didn't even know it. And there are a lot of people today drowning, and they don't know it. Living in a world, thinking they got it all together, thinking that they're right with God when they're not right with God, thinking that they are somehow going to make it to heaven on their own good works, and it's impossible. You're not going to make it to heaven on your own good works. You need to be a Christian. You need to be born again. Jesus said that. There's only one way, and it's through Jesus Christ. Believing what he did on the cross for you, and being filled with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God indwelling you. You need that. Otherwise, you are not a Christian. I don't care how much money you've given. I don't care about how often your family for generations has gone to a specific church. If the Spirit of God is not in you, you are none of His. That's the truth. So these men had already broken through the ice. They were drowning, and they didn't know it. Do you know Jesus this morning? Do you know him? Or are all your questions concerning him only asked in contempt, like the Pharisees and the scribes? Is your heart or soft? Is your heart hard or soft toward Christ? Verse 25, Jesus asked them the baptism of John. You know, they ask him a question. He turns it right around. He says, the baptism from John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reason among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, oh, why then didn't you believe in him? And again, I, go, I revert back to Mark's gospel because it even says this, and I believe it's even more forceful. He says, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. <laughs> Can you imagine? Answer me. It's almost like a father speaking to his young son who is in a heap of trouble. Is this true? Answer me. Has your father ever pointed a finger at you and brought you in a position like that? Well, that's exactly what is happening here. Because the father, God the son, who is equal with the father, he speaks to these men. He says, answer me. Jesus was in complete control. Even the, day that, even the day prior when he cleansed the temple in complete control, he was not out of control. He wasn't whipping people with whips. No, he used the whips to get people's attentions. He overturned the, the tables of people getting rich with the exchange rate and charging a lot of money for animals, for them to sacrifice with, for the Passover. He turned all that stuff over. But Jesus says, answer me. Like a father would say to his son, who's in a lot of trouble. You ever been in a lot of trouble with your parents? There's nothing worse than that. Especially when you're real young. And your mother says, go to my closet and pick a, pick a belt out of my closet that I'm going to whip you with. You can't do that. Oh, you can. You've got to be careful. 
and you've got to be measured. <laughs> Today, people don't discipline kids. My mother disciplined me, and she scared me to death. And it did my soul a lot of good. Verse 26, but if we say from men, for we fear the multitude, what a horrible thing to fear man. Here it is, the king of kings standing right before them, and and rather than fearing him, they were fearing what everybody else thought. What a great trap that is, isn't it? We fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. And John was a prophet. Jesus Jesus even said so in Matthew uh, chapter 11. He says, but what did you go out to see? Speaking of John, a man clothed in soft garments. Indeed, those who wear clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. John was a prophet. And so they answer verse 27 and says, well, we do not know. We do not know where John the Baptist and his message, whether it was from heaven or from men. And what cowards. What cowards. They weren't even willing to commit to even what they believed in their own heart at the time. God would have had more respect for them if they just said, you know what, we think it's from men. We don't believe it's from God. But now they're looking at the multitude. Isn't that a horrible thing? Do you have a conviction in your heart? And if your conviction is based on the word of God, you're on very solid ground. Hold to that. But these guys were more concerned about what everybody else thought. The multitude. Oh, I don't know. What, the, what are they going to think? They were opportunists. Well, if the multitude really thinks it was of men. Yeah, we think it's of men. But if the multitude thought, no, it's of God. Well, it's of God. They, they, didn't even, they, they, were like, they were like mercury on a table that's shifting like this, and the mercury's going all up. They were like completely unstable. They had no conviction in their own heart of who they were. They didn't have a conviction about anything other than that they were confused. (laughs) Yes, they were confused. And he, Jesus, said to them, Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And, And there is nothing worse than rejecting the truth. Rejecting the truth will quickly lead you to embracing a lie. They rejected the truth concerning John and who he was and who Jesus was. And listen, if you reject the truth, you will believe anything that rings slightly true to your darkened heart. And boy, is the devil good at deceiving and making something sound true and the rest of it is a lie. Oh, but if it's just a little true, then I'm believing it. And people today, that's happening. Instead of examining the bigger picture, the devil whispered. He's not stupid, the devil. He's a very intelligent being. He's nowhere near God, but he's no idiot. He didn't tell Eve a blatant lie. He mixed in the truth with it, and that's how deception works. Just a little bit of truth, a little bit of truth with a whole lot of lie, or a whole lot of truth with a little bit of lie, as long as it keeps you away from the truth. But they had rejected the truth. And there's nothing worse than rejecting the truth. Paul, speaking, to, speaking of unrighteous men, he said this in Romans. He says, Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. For the lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And we get a hint right here in this, cha- in this verse here what the lie really is. 
And I believe it's worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. The lie is what people are believing today, that anyone and anything can be God. It was the same lie that Satan hit Eve with in the garden. The serpent, remember, said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of this tree that God told you not to, he knows that in the day you eat of it that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can be a God, Eve. You can be just like him. And boy, once you reject the truth, you'll believe a lie. You'll believe the lie. And because these pretenders, these deceivers, rejected John the Baptist's message of repentance, they would reject Jesus' message as well. They were men-pleasers. They wouldn't be able to answer simple questions because it would put them at odds with the people who were spiritually had greater scruples than they did. And what a pity. Doesn't Proverbs tell us that the fear of man brings a snare? But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Ephesians tells us to, to not uh, serve the Lord with eye service as men pleasers. We don't want to be men pleasers, and that's what these men were. They were men pleasers. Rejecting the truth, embracing the lie. And when truth is rejected, you will continually need to readjust other logical, truthful things And in addition to that, you'll also have to cover up widely accepted truths to the point that you quickly will end up be a walking contradiction. Do you know that? The more you reject the truth, the more you've got to justify your position on very shaky grounds of, of other things that you hold to. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I mean, if it doesn't, just be honest. Yeah, it does. It makes sense. And this is what our culture has done. And, and, I, and I have to say this right now, and it's going to be short, I promise. But this is what our culture has done. We are living in it right now. They have rejected fundamental truths of biology, science, and common sense. And now there are highly educated people in every facet of our society believing that men can have menstrual cycles and that men can give birth to children a deep and deceptive depravity and spiritual wickedness and sickness has overrun our country. They've rejected God, they've rejected Christ, and therefore they will believe the lie. They're believing it right now, hook, line, and sinker. And are you allowing it to creep into your, mar- your heart and your mind? Because some churches are. In this country, there are churches that call themselves Christians that are embracing these lies. That somehow a man can become a woman. You have to reject the truth to believe that lie. And they have rejected the truth. But it's high time, folks, For the church to rise to the occasion. To rise to the occasion, speaking the truth in love and get engaged in the greatest spiritual battle of our time. And it's now. The greatest spiritual battle of our time is now. Do you believe that? I believe it with all my heart. And will you engage? Are you going to be a sideline? Are you going to be like the Pharisees, being on the sideline, not choosing anything, but just kind of being vanilla and just staying out of it? Or are you going to get engaged in the truth 
and who the truth is and what the truth is concerning the word of God, the truth concerning Jesus. Will you stick your neck out for what you know is true? I will. I will. And I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care if there's a PhD in Harvard who says different. I've got this as my foundation. I've got the word of God. And so do you. Anybody who has tried to take this and remove it and to say that it's nothing, they have been destroyed. Dante, other philosophers, they've come and gone and they've blasphemed the word of God and saying, oh, that's not true. They die, but the word of God endures forever. Amen? And God doesn't hate those people. Would to God that they would be saved. But there's a choice. There's a decision. And we are in a battle today. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they were in the middle of this huge, think of the spiritual tension as Jesus, the Son of God, stood there before them. And the test was on. The question, the decision was right before them. And they failed. Now, God is not done with Israel. We know that. If you read Romans, God has got a great plan for Israel, but he's right now turned his focus to the church made up of Jew and Gentile. But let's go on now uh, in verse 28 through 32 because only in Matthew is the, are these verses recorded, and it's right on the heels. So the narrative continues while Jesus speaks to them. So he says to them, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. He came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, but he didn't go. So which of the two men did the will of his father? And they naturally said, well, the first. And Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and, and prostitutes and harlots, they will enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe in him, but tax collectors and harlots believed in him. And when you saw that, you did not afterward relent and believe him. See, this whole parable here is about their, their uh, rejection of John the Baptist's message. And once the religious, the, the religious leaders should have been the ones to believe and accept John, uh, like the first son who did the father's will. But these religious leaders wouldn't believe when they saw the tax collectors and harlots believe. Once they saw that, like, well, we can't be a part of that because we're holy and they're not. We don't want to get our hands dirty with these people. You know, whenever a Christian looks at somebody else and says, oh, I can't talk to you, you got a real problem. <laughs> because Jesus was the one who went out to the people that nobody wanted, the outcasts, the pariahs of society, didn't he? He went out to the helpless and the hopeless and the maim and the lame and everything in between, the, the outcasts. Nobody wanted them. And Jesus said, I will accept you. I love you. And that's how I came to Christ. He reached down and touched my life, and I was going nowhere fast. And finally, we get to the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Jesus says to them, Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. So we have to identify in this parable who these players are. We know that the landowner is a reference to the Lord himself. 
the vine dressers, or the husbandmen, as they would be called in those days. It's a reference to the religious leaders, those who are supposed to tend and take care of the vineyard. And the vineyard are the people of Israel, the nation itself. So as we look at this parable and we identify the players, we get an understanding of, of all of this. And the vineyard is a reference to Israel. And Jeremiah, uh, God speaking of Israel in Jeremiah 2 verse 20, he says, For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not transgress. When on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down playing the harlot, yet I have planted you, lotus, a noble vine, a seed of the highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord your God. So certainly Jesus was referring... um, Jesus was specifically referring to another passage, and it's in Isaiah chapter 5. And let me just read it to you, because as we go through this parable, you're going to see the exact same thing here in Isaiah. He is, and they should have known this, and no doubt as he's talking to them and giving them this parable, they're probably thinking to themselves, that sounds like Isaiah. That is Isaiah 5 that he's referring to. Oh my goodness. Better listen up here. So let me read Isaiah 5 to you, just the first seven verses. God speaking through the prophet, 700 B.C., before Christ was even born. He says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. Speaking of Israel. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. And planted, uh, and he built a tower in its midst, and he also made a wine press in it. And so he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, why did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please tell me what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that, the rain, no, that, that they rain no, no rain on it. For the vineyard, notice, of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. For the men of Judah are his pleasant plant, He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So the vineyard is the house of Israel. And when Isaiah was sharing this and writing this in his prophecy in the 8th century, Jerusalem was still standing. The northern ten tribes had been taken captive. The temple was still there in Jerusalem. But we know, based on this parable, that it would be burned. It would be taken to the ground by the Babylonians in 586. And then hundreds of years after that, that, that captivity, the temple would be rebuilt by Herod. And then in Jesus' time, as he is speaking to this, he's also speaking of another time. About 37 years after Jesus would die on the cross and be resurrected, 37 years later, the Romans again would come and destroy Jerusalem and burn it with fire. 
because the vine dressers were not taking care of the vineyard. The religious leaders weren't taking care and following the Lord. It reminds me of the Lord just spoke to me to hear and I it reminds me of the lampstands in the church. You know, the church of the lampstands in the book of Revelation and and if we don't repent, the Lord would take away our lampstand, our, our influence. It reminds me of a very similar, a similar thing. But verse 34, back in our text, says, Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. Very natural to do. And the servants that are spoken here are probably referring to the Old Testament prophets. And the vine dressers, verse 35, took his garments, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to him. And the history of Israel in the Old Testament is rife with incidents where the Old Testament prophets, they were persecuted, they were beaten, and some of them were even killed. It's recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 18 that Jezebel, remember the wife of Ahab, the king of Israel? What did she do? She killed the the prophets of the Lord. Dozens of them. Hundreds of them. Nehemiah spoke of the rebelliousness of the house of Israel in chapter 9 verse 26 when he said, Nevertheless, they were disobedient, speaking of Israel, and rebelled against you, God. Cast your law behind uh, their backs and, and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn, themsel- to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of your enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who served them, uh, or saved them, excuse me, from the hand of their enemies. So God is very patient, very gracious. But the, the prophets who came to them, Many of them were persecuted, they were beaten, they were even killed. Jeremiah was imprisoned and treated harshly. In Second Chronicles 36, it says this, the chronicler here is speaking at the time Jerusalem fell to Babylon, and notice what he said, and the Lord God of your fathers sent early sent warnings to them by his messengers, speaking of the prophets, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. And therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword. And he goes on and on. But they killed the prophets. And John the Baptist was considered a prophet. So verse 37, it says, And then last of all, after sending all of these ambassadors, all these people to give an account of the vintage that the, that the landowner wanted, last of all, he sent his own son to them saying, well, certainly they will respect my son. And can you see in this what Jesus is doing is referring to himself. He's referring to himself They sent his son, saying, certainly they'll respect my son, verse 38, but when the vine dressers, the religious leaders, when they saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. 
Come and let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And the religious leaders did this. They were able to kill Jesus, but he would rise three days later, thwarting their evil desire and their evil plan. And they thought that they could get rid of Jesus and continue in their covetous ways and hope to steal Christ's inheritance, to continue to have rule and sway over the people of Israel. But this also would be thwarted because at Jesus' second coming, he would inherit, he will inherit the nations and the ends of the earth for his possession. What does it tell us in Psalm 2? I would encourage you to read Psalm 2. It's a messianic psalm, a beautiful psalm. Speaking of Christ coming to the earth and setting up his reign, the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign, which is still yet future to us. But in in Psalm 2, beginning in verse 7, it says, The Lord Jehovah, the Lord had said to me, and, and this is Jesus speaking through David here, what his father said to him. This is Jesus speaking of what God the Father said to him. He says, you, and this is what he says, I will, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you, notice, the inheritance, the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. It all belongs to the Lord, doesn't it? The inheritance. Jesus will inherit the nations and the ends of the earth as his inheritance. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, Jesus will reclaim what was forfeited by Adam and Eve in the garden in their rebellion. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and for a season, and that season has been going on for about 6,000 years or more, And Satan has had authority over the earth. Does that shock you? He's had authority over the earth. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was being tempted of Satan in the desert after his baptism? It says that again, this is Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you, Jesus, if you will just fall down and worship me. And if I were Jesus, I might have said, well, it doesn't belong to you, pal. It belongs to me. But did you notice that Jesus didn't correct him at that time? He didn't because he acknowledged that, yes, he is the ruler of this world for now, but ultimately it belongs to God, and he will reclaim, and he will inherit these things. And Jesus replied to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. John, in in John chapter 12 Uh, Jesus speaking here, he called Satan the ruler of this world, that he will be cast out. Yes, for now, he is the ruler of this world. In 1 John chapter 5, the apostle says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so the enemy of our soul, Satan, is the ruler of this world right now, but not for long because his rent is due and he hasn't paid it and he's going to get evicted very soon. Amen? Amen. (laughs) he's going to be evicted. But not New York. You can't do that. You can't evict anybody. He'll probably stay in New York, but everywhere else he'll be evicted. 
I shouldn't be so mean. Forgive me, Lord. But Satan's authority will be revoked at the second coming of Christ. And Satan will be cast first into the abyss for a thousand years. And then after that, he will be cast into the lake of fire. So verse 39, back in our text. So they took him, they took the son, and they grabbed him and they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. They took him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And the religious leaders said to him, verse 41, well, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their, in their seasons. So isn't it interesting? I find this interesting because after being rebuked in the previous passage, and they, they knew that Jesus was rebuking them, I would like to think that as Jesus began to share this parable that they were starting to squirm a little bit. (laughs) It's amazing because by their own answers, what were they doing? They were incriminating themselves and exposing their faithless hearts. They were exposing themselves. And these other vine dressers that are referred to in this verse may may refer to the church, I believe it does, But in no way does it mean that the church replaces Israel. Don't listen to anybody that says the church has replaced Israel. And don't listen to anybody that says the blessings and the promises that God gave to Israel, that now the church owns those, or somehow those those belong to the church now. No, they don't. God is faithful to his remnant, he's faithful to Israel, and he's faithful to the church. And he's got promises for each of them. They are two distinct entities, and yes, they will meet up in the millennial reign when all Israel is saved, the Bible tells us. There's coming a time when all Israel will be saved, but their, 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 um, their destiny will be together in the millennial reign, yet future to us, when Christ comes back to the earth physically in his second coming. So I believe these other vine dressers that are spoken here are the church because Israel has rejected them. But who received Jesus? Who received the message of the gospel? Was it not the Gentiles? The Gentiles received, many, some Jews did, many Jews did, but for the most part, the nation had rejected him, but the Gentiles received him wildly. In fact, we're all the reason for it. How many of you are Jewish today? Raise your hand if you're Jewish, if you're Jewish. Maybe a few. But most of us are Gentiles. Yeah. We received it. We received the message. And the apostles went out and shared that message. The apostle Paul on his missionary journeys, all three of them, four of them, whatever. He he spread the gospel, many others sharing the gospel. Has been continuing on from the very beginning. But they rejected him. Jesus said in verse 42, he said to them, have you never read the scriptures? And he's talking to very religious men and they're thinking, I beg your pardon, of course I know the scriptures. Yeah, but they've read them, but they didn't read them. You know, there's a difference. You know that too, right? You can read a book, but do you comprehend what you're reading? Comprehension's a very big deal. That's why they have reading comprehension on the SAT. You can read through it, and you can read all the words, and you can even, you know, 
but to understand what is being spoken. So Jesus had to say to them, have you never read the scriptures? And here he quotes Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Who was he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's telling them, I am the chief cornerstone that you have rejected, that the psalmist had written down a thousand years before Jesus would even be born. And this Psalm 118 was one of the Hallel Psalms, the Psalms of praise that they would sing when they would come to the feasts in Israel as they would either before the meal or after the meal, especially on Passover, they would read the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And they were just going to, just a couple days from when Jesus is speaking this to them, they're going to be singing that very song, do you understand? When they would gather for Passover, they were going to sing that psalm. that the stone which the builders rejected and how that must have stung them as Jesus said this to them, knowing that in just a couple days, like they've always been for years, they're going to read that psalm and the others, and they're going to be reminded of what Jesus said. Boy, the accountability is thick, isn't it? The accountability, he's just laying it on. I mean, they've got nowhere else to go. He's telling them everything, the truth, and they are they got to either accept the truth or they got to deny it. And they had denied it. And now they will believe anything. They will believe anything but Christ. And be careful. Because today you may be here thinking, well, I, I'm not sure what I think. That, that's okay. You have a right. You have a mind. You have a brain. You can, you can think on your own. But just understand that search the Scriptures And learn with us. Come and learn with us what the Bible says. Because the Bible, the Word of God, is here for us. To show us who God is, who we are, the great gulf that's in between, and the great plan of redemption that He has orchestrated from the beginning. Before the foundation of the earth, He put all these things together. And come to know Jesus. And and, and your search is over. Your search will be over. But if you don't receive Christ and don't believe Him, you will believe something else. You will believe anything else. And the world wants you to believe it. The spirit of the world doesn't want you to think about Jesus Christ. That's why the schools have removed him. They've kicked him out the door. All the universities, we don't, we don't want anything to do with Jesus. And I know this because I've gone through public schools all my life. I went through some of the best schools in college. Some of the best schools And it's the same. Anything but Christ. Anything but Christ. And folks, that's who you're sending your kids to. Be thinking about that. And now you're thinking, you're probably like, you better shut up, Pastor. I'm going to meet you outside because we're spending thousands of dollars. Well, maybe so. And maybe you need to. But you need to be aware of what's happening, the bigger picture. Because they are not there to encourage your son or daughter in their faith in Christ. They will do everything to undermine it. I know this because they tried to do it to me. Therefore, verse 43, I say to you, Jesus said to these religious leaders, 
The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Now, who is this nation referring to? The Greek word here uh, translating uh, nation is the Greek word, uh, the Greek word translated nation is ethnos. In the New Testament, in the great majority of times, it is used as referring to Gentile nations. You can look that up yourself. But this word ethnos is a singular noun, and it may refer, it may refer, and I believe it does to some extent, it may refer to the church. And the reason I say that is because Peter calls the church a holy nation using the exact same word in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Speaking to the church, he says, but you, church, are a chosen nation a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And the word is ethnos, the same word that we get here. And he's speaking to the church. So I believe that Jesus here is speaking to the church. His own special people. Do you know that you're special to God? You may not feel very special today, but do you know that he loves you? The world is a horrible place right now. There's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of fear, but can I tell you, there's one who loves you more than you could possibly understand. And his desire is for you to come to know him and to have fellowship with him. The truth remains the same. He is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him because no one died for your sins except Jesus Christ. I cannot atone for my sin because the soul that sins shall surely die, Ezekiel tells us. Somebody has to die. It's either going to be me and I spend my eternity in hell or somebody's going to pay the price for me in propitiation or atonement for myself, uh, a replacement, if you will. Instead of me going to hell... Instead of me dying, Christ died for you. He paid the punishment for your and my sin. And it was perfect once and for all because Almighty God hung on that cross, not just a martyr, not just some holy man. But the Gentiles gladly received the gospel. Verse 44, it says, And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Jesus often in the Old Testament has been referred to as a stone. We know that in Isaiah, it speaks of him being a, a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. In Daniel's prophecy, remember in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is interpreting a dream of Nebuchadnezzar of all these different um, a head of gold and a breastplate of silver and, and this, this man with all these different metals and, 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 and Daniel interprets this for the king. But then at the end of it, and this is what's interesting, at the end of man's government, there is something else that happens. It says in verse 45 of Daniel 2 that inasmuch, Daniel says, as you saw, Nebuchadnezzar, that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Every one of those precious metals is a major uh, kingdom that has been on the earth, the Roman Empire, the Medes and the Persians, you name it, the, and, and, it, and it's, uh, it's all signified of them. But there's one coming who is going to blow away all of those other kingdoms. It's a rock made without hands. It's going to hit the foot of that 
government of man and destroy it all. And it speaks of Jesus' second coming to the earth. Read Revelation 19, verse 11, when Jesus comes back to the earth. He's coming back in judgment. He already came, hasn't he? Nearly 2,000 years ago, he came to seek and to save the lost. And you and I are the recipients of that grace. But when the church age is finished and the church is raptured, all hell is going to break loose on this earth. And it's coming, folks. It's coming soon. Because if the church is removed today, hope that you're with it. I hope that you're with it. I hope that you're with the church. And how do you become part of the church? It's very simple. Repent and believe. Repent of your sin. And acknowledge it to God and say, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I've always been a sinner. I tried to fake it and think that I'm somehow decent. No, there's none good. The Bible says that. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the Lord loves you. He wants you to be a part of that church and escape the wrath to come. And the wrath is coming, folks. Do you think God's going to allow the earth to continue going on the way it is? There's come a time when he's going to rectify the problem. And the Bible speaks of it very clearly. It's very clear as you look through the scripture what's coming and what's going to happen. And folks, it's lining up so clearly as we see it. Be encouraged. Look up because your redemption is drawing near. Amen? Verse 45, And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, no doubt they are quaking inside because Jesus is making reference to passages like Isaiah 5, talking about the vineyard and, 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 and the destruction and the, the judgment. And they knew that he, Jesus, was talking about them. They knew it. Now when the chief, Pharisees, chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Yes, he was. But notice, it didn't change their heart at all, but rather their heart got harder and harder. And that's a thing we got to be careful of in these last days, folks, is as we see things, allow the Spirit of God to soften your heart. And, and the church, we need this more than anybody because I, I found myself, and maybe you're like myself, and I think we're very similar, right? We're, we're, nobody's different here. As you see the things going on in the world, your heart can tend to get hard. And God says, hang in there with me, church. Hang in there with me and call upon me and let me soften your heart. Yes, in the midst of a very difficult time in history. Folks, we are at the end of the end. I believe that with all my heart. People have said it before, but now I'm like, oh my goodness. It's almost like you're looking out in front of you and you see the smoke clouds. You know, it's getting that close. We don't know how much time we have. Time is short. Make today the day that you receive Jesus into your heart. Do not wait another day, I beg you. Because I remember when I was 24 years old, I'm 53 now, but when I was 24, I thought I had the world by the tail. I thought I had a bunch of life ahead of me, and thank God he's allowed me to live as long as I have. But I, I, I was scared to death after I came to Christ, and I realized how volatile my eternity was. Because before that, I didn't even care. But once I came to Christ, I shook in my boots, and I'm saying, Lord, how many times have I come this close to death in my short life 
and you preserve me. Oh, all of a sudden, I'm just like falling on my knees, convulsively crying, thanking him. And I would encourage you to do the same because he loves you. He loves you immensely, regardless of what you're going through, regardless of how you feel about yourself. It's not about you, but he loves you. But don't worry about how you're feeling and the state that you're in. Come to the Lord with all of your mess. Seriously, don't try to clean up and then come to the Lord. No, come to him with being completely filthy, dirty, and he'll take care of the rest. He wants you to. Religion says, well, you've got to clean up your act before you come before the king. But the Bible says, no, come with all of your rags and your mess, and I'll clean you up. You can't clean yourself up enough to be in my presence, the Lord says. But what I'll do is something better than that. I'll plant my spirit within you, and then, then you will work out the salvation that I've put within you, and it'll begin to work out in your life in very practical ways. It will, and it has, and it does. It's beautiful. We're all, a prog- we're all in progress. Aren't you glad? Is there anybody here squeaky clean and, and, and totally free from issues and sin in their life? Okay, only, only four people in the back. No, just kidding. No, none of us. None of us. Come to him with all of your mess. He's not ashamed. I'm ashamed. But he's not ashamed to call you a son or daughter. The love that you've always wanted is found in Jesus Christ. The love that you've always wanted, and I know this for myself personally, It's been the greatest joy of my life, the greatest ride that I've ever been on to know Christ. And for those of you who know him, you know that to be true. It's not been a life easy. It hasn't been easy at all. In fact, you don't really know you're alive until you are a Christian, and then you're like, oh my goodness, I had no idea that there was even a spiritual battle. I thought I was just making a living and doing my thing and, you know, and whatever. And and the Lord's like, no, no, there's something really big here happening. You're in a cosmic war. You're in a spiritual battle, folks. And like I said earlier in the message this morning, it is the greatest battle of our time right now. Don't let anyone deceive you. Isn't that what Jesus said before he was crucified, before he resurrected? He says, let no, let no one deceive you. Let no man deceive you. And deception is rampant right now. But notice, finally, in verse 46, and then we're going to end here. But when they sought to lay hands on him, notice they feared the multitude. The multitudes, because they took him for a prophet. Two times in this chapter alone, it it speaks of uh, the religious leaders having the fear of people. The first time was in verse 26. They feared the multitudes because the multitudes counted John as a prophet. Now here in verse 46, they feared the multitudes again, And so they didn't arrest Jesus then. They had to do it in darkness. Do you notice that? Remember the night in the Garden of Gethsemane? Did they come and arrest Jesus in, in broad daylight where everybody could see it? No, they did it under stealth. They brought in SEAL Team 6. And they put on their helmets and their night vision and they snuck in and they got him. That's what they did. By stealth hands, wicked hands, unlawful hands they they did this and the bible says in proverbs the fear of man brings a snare 
But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. And the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, not, notice not the fear of man, but the fear of the Lord, the reverence of God. And yes, fear him. If you don't know him, fear him. You, you should fear him because he has the ability to take not only your soul and your body, everything, and destroy it, but he also has the ability to give you everlasting life. And isn't it simple? It's not like God is upset because you, he doesn't have an ego problem. No, he knows exactly what you need, and, and, and we just accept it and say, Lord, I, I'm in need of salvation. Aren't you in need of salvation today? If you're not a believer here this morning, you're in need of salvation. Just admit it. We've all lost our way. I don't have it all together. I need Jesus. And even as a Christian, I still need him every single day. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So don't be a fool. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. The lover of your soul the one who wants to spend eternity with you where there are pleasures forevermore. Amen. There is no greater offer on the table, folks. No greater offer on the table. Man's government is not going to bring you peace. Material possessions aren't going to give you peace. A fat bank account, you know, what is it? Somebody recently won with the $1.7 billion jet. Pray for that person. Good Lord, nobody should have that kind of money. All of a sudden, everybody becomes your friend. Fear God and not man. Now as a believer, I fear God in the sense of I reverence him. I have an, a, a deep reverence for him. And your heart ought to feel that way as a believer. Your heart is tender. And you're like, Lord, I know I don't have to fear you anymore. I know you're not going to, I know because of my faith in Christ and all that he has done for me and the promises that you've made to us in your word, I know that I don't need to fear you in that sense. But Lord, I reverence you. I know that you are all powerful. The Bible says it over and over again. He holds all things. He made all things. And he's able to speak it. He's able to bring judgment. And he's righteous in his judgment. In all of his judgment, he's righteous. And then when, once you are his, oh my goodness, the treasure doors open and the love of God pours out upon you. And it's a great, great thing to feel forgiven, to know that you're forgiven, to know that you're going to heaven, not based on your works, but based on the work and the merit of Christ. That is the message. That is the best thing happening, folks. It's the best offer you will ever get. And I pray this morning that if there's anybody here, I'm not going to make anybody feel uncomfortable here, but... If you haven't received Christ today, would you come up after the service and pray with someone? I'd love to pray with you, but God is the one who saves. I'm just the delivery boy. <laughs> He's the one who does all the work. Amen? Amen? And we're all delivery boys, right? Delivery persons. We're delivery persons. Just deliver the message. It's a great message. What do you think of that? Don't you love him? Do you love Jesus? He loves you, folks. He loves you.
Let's stand. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this passage today. It's been challenging. And Lord, help us, Lord. I pray for everyone in earshot of this message that, Lord, you grab a hold of their heart. Lord, that they wouldn't just believe anything that's been spoken to them by some guru, some PhD, and there's nothing wrong with education, Lord, you know that. But Lord, there, there is one that we need to listen to, and that's you. Lord, your word is, endures forever. Your word is, a, is the best. Your word is the standard. And so, Lord, we thank you for today. I pray that you would just work these things in our hearts and our lives, Lord Jesus. And for anyone here that has not come to know you, Lord, that today would be that day that they would just cry out to you and very simply ask. And Lord, you run to those. You run to those who have an ounce of faith and belief in you to fan that flame, to encourage that belief. And so Lord, do that work today. We thank you, Jesus, for being with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.